Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 300 Contemplative Computing. We're joined again by author and futurist Alex Sujung Kim Pang to explore some of his ideas on how to engage with technology in contemplative ways. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. I feel like part of this conversation and this exploration is really... Uh, going back to the contemplative kind of perspective, not that mm-hmm. there's one, not that there's one of them, but going back to a more contemplative perspective, um, part of the question that arises, and I think contemplatives have been, they've been looking at this with the technologies of their ages since since the dawn of contemplation, uh, right. which is how do we engage if we're trying to live some sort of some degree of a contemplative life, mm-hmm. some degree of taking time to investigate this inner experience of, of consciousness, of being conscious, mm-hmm. um, of identity, of, you know, the myriad sensations that make up our, our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we relate to these different technologies? Wh- which ones do we utilize? Which ones do we uh, renounce? You know, part of the mm-hmm. Buddhist tradition that I practice in, renunciation is a core principle, sort of putting aside certain things that don't um, support the aims of, of the practices and the models that I'm trying to actualize. So, mm-hmm. um, so then the question becomes, for, for me now, now that we're living in the 21st mm-hmm. century and we're dealing with categories of technology that have never existed before, that mm-hmm. enable all kinds of possibilities uh, that, have ne- that were never possible before, how do people who have an interest in that sort of thing today relate with these technologies? How do we sort of decide what technologies to adopt, which ones to renounce? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a, it's a huge question. And I think a lot of people are struggling with this and even people that don't have an interest in contemplation struggle with this. Sure, sure. Now, okay, so I think um, I would start by, you know, I've got a section in the book where um, I interviewed a bunch of um, Buddhist monks and nuns who are, you know, sort of who have uh, YouTube channels and are bloggers and so forth. And they're sort of, you know, people like Bhikkhu Samahita, who is in uh, Sri Lanka and is, uh, you know, he's a forest monk. He runs this blog, you know, he runs his website, What the Buddha Said, and he's a presence on Facebook and Twitter and sort of Google Plus and all, you know, various places. And what I was interested in, in talking to them was, a question I think very similar to sort of the one that you just posed. I wanted to understand their views of these technologies that so many of us find kind of difficult and distracting and to understand whether they see them, you know, how they deal with the challenge of sort of spending you know, hours a day online answering questions, uploading videos and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, whether there is a tension between using a technology that so many people find to be uh, sort of um, distracting and unenlightening to, uh, to, to teach lessons about um, things like meditation and contemplation. 
and what was if you've ever studied anthropology you know or you've you've done interviews sometimes when you're really lucky you get these moments where you ask people questions that you think are perfectly obvious and it turns out that built into them is some assumption that you have that is completely alien to them and you know, when I when I started asking the of asking these monks and nuns about so how is it that you manage to spend hours online without sort of this becoming a distraction? At first, you know, it was like asking, well, you know, how is it that you're able to wear clothes in a gravitational field? Um, you know, it was sort of what's uh, what seemed to me like a perfectly reasonable question. It was one that I really had to unpack for them, and they're you know, universally they turn the question around. Um, you know, why is it that you think that the distraction comes from the technology? And their argument was, you know, of actually the monkey mind is itself a far greater engine of distraction than any external technology, right? Any ex sort of any external thing. And that once you understand, you know, spending hours playing video poker or sort of watching cats on YouTube is not just a kind of inevitable consequence of you know, human evolution, sort of you know, up, you know, sort of you know, an expression of our ancient caveman desire to closely watch furry things, presumably as a prelude to you know, killing and eating them, um, but rather probably reflects other kinds of dissatisfactions in our lives, rather than um, sort of uh, then reflects a sort of a love of shiny, blinky internet things. Once you see that, then the problem resolves itself. And I think that this is, it may not be a kind of position that everyone can take, but I think it is a really powerful one. And you know, ultimately what the argument is, is that distraction doesn't come from technology, distraction comes from within. And that you deal with it the same way that you've dealt with distractions you know, that you know for the last 2,500 years, you know, as you you know you said earlier about you know the history of contemplation, and it is you know it's not something that uh, that historians or even historians of religion have spent a huge amount of time on, but there is you know, sort of contemplative practices really do have a history, and you know the first organized ones all emerge the first organized you know sort of formal public systems all emerge within, you know, within a couple hundred years of each other during what Carl Jaspers called the Axial Age, right? This, and you know, whether you're talking about sort of Greek philosophy or, you know, Buddhism or sort of the, you know, the, the Jewish Essenes or um, uh, sort of early monastic, you know, the, the, the Desert Fathers and early Christianity, sort of these are practices that you know, developed in a world that was experiencing you know, wrenching political change, that was in the process of urbanizing, that was seeing the growth of global trade. In other words, in its own way, it was a world that was changing very quickly, much in the same way that our world is. And so contemplative practices sort of emerged at a time that there's no small resemblance to today's world. And indeed, I think you can argue, and frankly, I hope one day in a future big book on 
the history of contemplation and sort of the extended mind, I will be able to argue that there is a kind of twin history between the growing complexity of civilizations and the develop, you know, and innovations and technology that have sort of regular responses in contemplative practices. And so I would argue that what the distraction addiction is part of, as well as other work by other people who are interested in the intersection of contemplation and technology, is an effort to figure out how sort of to meet these old challenges yet again um, with applied to new environments and new tools. Um, now, as for the practical question of you know how you go about dealing with this, how do you you know how do you go about meeting these challenges, and are there things that sort of contemplatives can do or contemplatives should feel obliged to think about and do that maybe sort of the rest of us who are just trying to get control of our inbox don't need to think about so much. That's a really interesting question, and I think that you know part of what I do in the distraction addiction is try to outline the things that you need to think about, the things you need to try to do in order to get back control of what I call your extended mind, that kind of amalgam of brain and technology and of you know, carbon and silicon that um, I think reasonably can be said to define who you are. And part of it is... I think recognizing the degree to which we our relationships with information technologies now define who we are as a species. You know, human beings are inseparable from technologies. You know, going back several million years ago to the formation of you know, the of the first you know the first stone axes. Um, now, I've held one of these things in my hands, you know, this million-year-old hand axe, and, the inc- and it's incredible how well it still conforms to the hand. The thing is still sharp. You know, sort of, I can't imagine anything that I own being useful a million years from now or even you know, surviving in a million years, but this thing has. And we, you know, and our, you know, our bodies have evolved, our cognitive capabilities have evolved with an assumption that we will have certain kinds of technologies like cooked food, clothing, weapons available to us. Now, we eat, you know, to take one really simple example, we eat more meat than our, you know, than our sort of chimpanzee or gorilla cousins, but we have, you know, sort of our teeth are a lot less sharp, our jaws are weaker, um, our digestive systems are less robust. So, you know, what explains this? Well, the explanation is we've evolved to eat cooked meat. And for the last million or so years, we've had access to weapons and a fire, which is which have allowed us to increase the amount of protein that we consume and to consume it in a way or to prepare it in a way that makes it a lot easier to chew and digest. And so I, the literal shapes of our faces the size of our jaws reflect sort of a million year relationship with technology. And part of what has come with this is an ability to kind of to develop intimate 
and incredibly meaningful relationships with the with technologies with devices. You know, you read something like you know, or if, you know, Eugen Harigel's book Zen and the Art of Archery. You know, where he talks about bow and arrow, body and ego becoming one in that instant when you take aim, and you know, the shot falls like sort of you know a cherry blossom from the tree, and that reflects a kind of sense of technologies doing two things and one of them extending our physical capabilities or sometimes our cognitive capabilities but secondly that extension being something that is incredibly profound and often very very pleasurable um if you read mihai csikszentmihalyi's book flow which is one of the great classic books in i guess what is now called happiness psychology the psychology of happiness one of the really interesting things about flow states is how often they involve using some kind of device whether it is you know at the chessboard or it's doing surgery or riding a motorcycle or flying an airplane very very often um the flow states that Ruchik sent me highs subjects found gave meaning to their lives or have happened when they were using things and i think this is not an accident nor is it something that i would say that we should um turn away from or renounce so the challenge is not to figure out how to you know excise technologies from our lives but how to learn to redesign our relationships with them or sometimes redesign them so that we can have those kinds of great experiences and fewer of the ones that are you know frustrating and distracting now i think also there's some programs some tools that already try and sort of promote that kind you know of promote a more focused state you know in things like you know the whole category of zenware right fred stutzman's program mac freedom um the word processing tool write room or ohm writer these are all examples of software that are designed to help you become more focused by being incredibly simple yes um you know i mean there is you know and there is an avowedly kind of zen design sort of element to that right sort of they are they are radically decluttered user experiences um they've stripped down the functionality to a bare minimum of things that you absolutely have to have in order to get your work done and they put in nothing else that you can use to you know kind of feel like you're getting work done but really what you're doing is just fussing with the margins and playing around with the fonts and you know moving the end notes to footnotes all that stuff that with conventional say word processors feels like productivity but really is just avoidance using those i think can be helpful because they you know because they force you to think about how you use technologies and how you can use them well um they also introduce you to the idea that you can more broadly kind of self experiment with or the and make choices about the software that you use so that you can or so that you can use it more mindfully and thus become more mindful while using it now to the question of are there things that sort of contemplatives ought to renounce because they are sort of just you know either because they're sort of too complicated or too distracting or so on um 
I think that there's certainly, you know, you certainly have to think a lot, or you have to think, let's say, about why you use your tools and why. However, is it the case that an iPhone that has, you know, you know, a meditation timer, um, is this something that, you know, should you not use the, the, you know, the timer with the bells because, you know, it's a more complex technology? Well, that, and that's no, not where I, I was coming no. from. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, but, not, and that's not where I was no. coming from. No. I think, I think that kind of but, the framing of that question uh-huh. might be with the boomer Buddhists, that's kind of maybe a little more <laughs> older Buddhists frame the question. Right. But, um, you know, yeah. But, you know, are there entire categories of things that you should, uh, you know, that, uh, that you should, or just, you know, you should reject? I think the answer is no. I mean, I right. think the question is sort of, how can you, you know, sort of how can you take better control of it? You know, how can you get these things to serve your purposes? Um, and can you see in them opportunities, either you know, opportunities to improve your own contemplative practices, or sometimes maybe, you know, or, or sometimes useful challenges to those practices? You know, one of the one of the nuns I interviewed talked about how. And she's she's Canadian, and when I interviewed her, she was studying um, in India. She said, you know, keeping up with the news is a really good opportunity to practice compassion. And yeah, that struck me as a nice example of how something that it, that approached in the right way um, can be a, contempl- a contemplative practice rather than a distracting one. And, you know, you see the same kind of thing with photography, for example. You know, there are ways that you can use, you know, there are plenty of people who use taking pictures as a way of putting some distance between themselves and the world. Um, You know, people who will be witnesses to car crashes and will whip out their smartphones and take a picture before going to help, for example. But it's also possible to, you know, to use the experience of picture taking as a way to become more engaged with the world, you know, to look at it more thoughtfully, to kind of slow down and to notice things that you might not otherwise. And so I think that sort of asking the question of how can you become more contemplative with this technology? Um, and if you're a designer, you know, how can you make the technology itself more contemplative yeah. is one that is really, really, really worth asking. And it's only going to become more urgent as we move from uh, things that we carry around with us to uh, computational platforms that you know, we have embedded here right. or that we, you know, or that we wear um, or that follow us around without necessarily our even really being very aware of them. Those raise all kinds of very interesting questions about cognition and mindfulness that um, I think many of the designers are not in their headlong desire to make user interfaces easy to use or create what they think of as you know intuitive systems or even you know to create tools that operate on our behalf without our knowledge uh, yes. that that operate in the kind of background of our lives. And you can, uh, and that, and one of the very useful questions you can ask is, uh, how useful is it? You know, 
what kind of a life can you have when more and more of these kinds of tasks are done mindlessly, are done sort of, outs- sort of you know, outside of your conscious knowledge, sort of, you know, outside of your control? What does that do to your, to your ability to sort of apprehend and act well in the world, um, even if it makes your you know, sort of your daily life a little bit, you know, a little bit easier to sort of to manage? Yes. Yes. Great. And I think those are great questions uh, about the trade-offs there and mm-hmm. um, about yeah. the future, a future of these technologies yeah. too, as they move yeah. into wearables and things like that. I yes. remember you posted a link about, um, I think this was you, uh, an article that someone wrote saying the body doesn't want to be an interface. And it was yes. a sort of counter perspective to the notion that, um, you know, we're going to turn our body and like, you know, uh, blinking and you know different body things into a way to interface with the computing environment now you know the whole notion of sort of um intuitive interfaces is one that i think we ought to just scrap for all kinds of reasons you know and partly as that authors as that author pointed out our bodies have not evolved to have sort of uh, to have natural interactions with Technologies and the idea that you know when you're using uh, that sort of let's say interacting with a web page you know going to the next page that you know going up onto the screen and doing this is somehow less natural or intuitive than doing it with your eyes you know doing something like you know that um, but in some way you know this kind of thing is less obtrusive or more natural. It, we got to take a step back and sort of ask if that's really so, um, and whether or if we don't actually have you know, really good ways of sort of managing those kinds of interactions already. That you know, if you just look at things like the number of different gestures in the world that you know humans have for saying hello or warning of danger or so on, there's an awful lot of cultural contingency to that, right? Mm. Um, you know, the way that people will point with hands versus with eyes versus you know, other ways, you know, that alone should give interaction designers pause. And I think that uh, that maybe one of the things that um, people who are a little bit more mindful about their own use of technology partly because they want to be more mindful generally, can contribute to this is a recognition of how those kinds of apparently natural interfaces are often anything but. Cool. Thank you. That's great. Good good little reflection on uh, contemplative design and how it plays in. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Alex, for, uh, again, taking the time to explore some of the themes that you've been researching and writing about mm-hmm. and spending your life uh, investigating. It's really great <laughs> to tap your mind. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun, 
from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.